Hello, and welcome to this FRDH First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. What do you know about civil wars? Why and how do they start? Is the United States on the verge of another one? In the 1990s, when I worked for NPR, I had two major beats, three actually, but reporting about the disintegration of the marriages of Queen Elizabeth II's children is not something I put on my resume. The two main areas I was assigned involved civil wars. The wars were in different phases and of different scales. Northern Ireland was in the conflict resolution phase. Bosnia was white hot. And my work from the London Bureau was focused on the many failed attempts by international organizations, the UN, the EU, and for a while, even NATO, to get the combatants on all three sides in Bosnia to stop killing each other and negotiate an end to the fighting. Both stories made me think very hard about the nature of civil war in the modern world because there were similarities in the two conflicts. Northern Ireland's and Bosnia's civil wars both had their origins in unresolved sectarian conflicts going back centuries with a layer of modern ethno-nationalist hatred thrown on top. This hatred was the legacy of nationalist feeling that has been long suppressed because these societies were part of larger geopolitical entities, the United Kingdom in the case of Northern Ireland, and in Bosnia it was the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and before the Austro-Hungarian Empire there was the Ottoman Empire. Both were shaped in the failures, although it was not seen like that at the time, of the post-World War I redrawing of maps around Europe and the Middle East. Yugoslavia was created in this period, and it was in the years immediately following World War I that Ireland finally became independent of Britain, except for the six counties of Ulster, with its majority Protestant population who wanted to remain part of the United Kingdom. Neither were created out of whole cloth at the end of the Great War. In the second half of the 19th century, nationalism became a force. The various peoples of Europe, living as subjects inside larger entities, like the Austro-Hungarian Empire or the British Empire, began to organize around the idea of becoming independent nation-states. Often the theorizing about what comprised the nation was based on religious and ethnic identity. The idea of a Yugoslavia, a land for the South Slavs, had been bubbling around throughout the second half of the 19th century. As Irish home rule and then full independence became a force in British politics in the late 19th century, the Protestant North resisted, organized and created an identity and political bloc within Parliament, a bloc that was courted by the Conservative Party for its own ends. And in the negotiations with Britain that created the Republic of Ireland, the six counties were allowed to remain part of the United Kingdom. In it, but not of it. The North always thought of itself as a state in and of itself, an Irish Protestant counterweight to the Irish Catholic South. The problem with this conception of the nation-state is that no boundaries can ever be drawn that create a pure ethnic or sectarian entity. Religion and ethnicity mingle everywhere on earth, always have, without generosity from the majority to the minority, fault lines grow. 
Time passed. History, in the form of World War II and the Soviet Union and Cold War, happened. Political structures were built over the fault lines to minimize them, but nevertheless in both places the fault lines deepened, then ruptured. Now, this is just a brief podcast, not a semester-long course titled Modern Civil Wars, How They Start and Do They Ever End, so I'm going to glide over the differences in how and why both conflicts got started and talk about two other similarities. Words. Words are the primary tool used to drive societies apart. Words spoken, not in private, but in public. In Northern Ireland, the words came from the pulpit, the Reverend Ian Paisley being the most famous preacher against equality for Catholics in the years leading up to the eruption of the Troubles, as the Civil War in the North was euphemistically called. Paisley then became the main proselytizer for fighting paramilitary fire with fire, and thus the Civil War got underway. His views, slightly polished for family consumption, were retailed in the province's main Protestant newspapers. As Yugoslavia disintegrated, that country's former communist apparatchiks morphed into ethno-nationalist demagogues. These men already controlled state broadcast media and used radio and TV, words and images, to foment war among the different parts of the country. Serbian leader Slobodan Milosevic was particularly adept in using media to manufacture consent for civil wars that were genocidal in intent and nature. This use of propaganda would form part of the indictment against him at the International Criminal Tribunal on Yugoslavia when he was arrested in 2001 for crimes against humanity. Final similarity. The majority of people living in Northern Ireland and Bosnia did not want the civil wars to start. A committed minority forced the conflict on their fellow citizens. It's become human nature in a data-driven world to try and quantify things, and I spent years after I had moved on thinking about what percentage of a population wanting to fight was necessary to ignite a civil war. 30% is the number I came up with. It came to me while making a documentary about Israel and Palestine 20 years ago. It's a different kind of conflict, but it has elements of a civil war, two people fighting over the same bit of land. Anyway, the Second Intifada was just getting underway. There was low-intensity fighting going on. Yet public opinion research on both sides continued to show 70% of Israelis and 70% of Palestinians wanted peace. That was probably true. But if pollsters conducted their surveys on days when Palestinian terrorists had blown up a bus with schoolchildren on it, I doubt that the number on the Israeli side would have been 70% in favor of peace. Similarly, if a poll was conducted on a day when Israeli warplanes had bombed a hospital in Gaza, you would not find more than two-thirds of Palestinians, even the many who hate Hamas as much as Israelis do, in favor of a peace deal with Israel. Anyway, that number, 70% for peace, chimed with what I had often heard in Belfast, or from Balkan refugees in London, or later on when I went to Sarajevo. Civil war is a minority pursuit, and something that can only be dreamed of when people have access to weapons, as they did in Northern Ireland and Bosnia. 
But once the minorities start the violence, the majority are forced to pick a side, and the conflicts can go on for a very long time. Looking at conditions in America today, from across the Atlantic, it's difficult not to see the parallels. Unresolved historical grievances. America's got them. The Confederate mindset has never really gone away. If anything, it has grown in recent decades and expanded its influence outside the South. Words have propelled this expansion. Words from the pulpit, a politicized section of the clergy arguing on behalf of bigotry, as in Northern Ireland. There are preacher dynasties built on it. A revival of ethno-sectarian politics led by demagogues who have changed their ideological clothes to maintain their political power, as in Bosnia. That's the journey of the Republicans from party of Reagan to faction of Trump. The journey has been aided and abetted and coordinated with media outlets created specifically to foment division. Fox News peddles lies as truth. I know it, you know it, and if some quarters of the Washington press are to be believed, Rupert and Lachlan Murdoch and their well-paid on-camera talent know it as well. And because there's profit in it, other propaganda outfits have sprung up. The Bosnian Civil War was heralded by a breakdown of basic parliamentary governance, with one side's politicians, the Serbs, effectively refusing to work with the other sides on any issue. Their intransigence was backed up by armed violence outside the parliament building in Sarajevo. January 6th reminded me of that violence. And on one side, call it the Trump faction, I reckon 30% of the population would be happy to fight. When newly elected Colorado Congresswoman Lauren Boebert releases a video of herself swaggering around Capitol Hill, pistol strapped on, it's a challenge to everyone else. Come on, fight me for this. From a distance, it seems remarkable that America hasn't already descended into conflict. Maybe it's already in a cold civil war. The Cold War between the U.S. and Soviet Union went on for more than four decades. It never went hot. Nuclear weapons and the MAD theory, mutually assured destruction, worked to keep the peace between the superpowers. There was a world war fought throughout this period among their proxies, and it was very hot. But between the USA and USSR, the war was cold, and maybe that's where America is right now dysfunctional governance as Republicans refuse to engage in the basic types of good-faith negotiations necessary to sustain democratic legislatures, persistent low-level violence away from the main population centers, mutually assured destruction keeping full-on civil war at bay. Talk of civil war is beginning to percolate through the body politic. Pew Research Center has begun to notice the term turning up in its public opinion polling. Here are two examples from a recent poll about the pandemic and wearing masks. A 26-year-old woman told Pew Research, Having to be around people at work who don't wear masks, despite it being required by our governor, feeling like I need to check the news about the virus only to be constantly reminded that Trump is actively trying to kill off Americans, incite violence, start a civil war, and the Dems aren't doing enough to stop it. This country is falling apart, and it's extremely depressing and scary.
and then a 67-year-old man said, from the other side, I really do think this outbreak is not a big deal. I really believe it is a government control thing to see how far they can push us. I am here to tell you, the American veteran will not stand by and let government take away our rights. If they're looking for a civil war, they will get one. How long can the U.S. survive in this state of cold civil war? Six months before the pandemic hit, seems like another historical epoch, even though it was only 18 months ago, I gave a lecture at the Stoke Newington Literary Festival here in London called Divorce, spelled out like in the title of the Tammy Wynette song. It was based on the observable fact that the U.S. was hopelessly divided and nobody wanted another civil war, so maybe it was time to just divide up the country. It was meant to be Swiftian in tone. Now I'm wondering if it may be the only way to avoid serious bloodshed. Maybe breaking up the United States is inevitable. One other thing I learned covering civil wars, no nation lasts forever. But that's the subject for another hundred podcasts. That's all for this one. And you can hear more. Lots more at the website, www.goldfarmpod.com. Please do visit. And while you're there, make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks.